Uh, we'll read these together. Uh, we are on the sixth church of seven, um, starting in verse seven of the book of Revelation, chapter three. Verse seven. And the angel of the church in Philadelphia writes, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who was the key of David, who opens that no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have a little power, and yet you have kept my word, and I have denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them more and bow before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you, because you have kept my word about patience and endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast for what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. I will write to him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear with the spirit of the churches. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, our Heavenly Father, we are so humbled that, that you, you created the church. And that, Lord, we could, we could gather and, and worship our resurrected King. God, this morning I pray, O oh Lord, that this church in Philadelphia became a model for us, a mold for us of the kind of church that God blesses, that we may become this kind of church. And God, we desire that even though they were few, that they were powerful. And God, I pray this morning, Lord, that you do a change in our own hearts, that you cause our mind to change and, and have our actions change. So, so God, be with us this morning. Holy Spirit, teach us. Help us, the Lord, to listen to the words of the prophecy from this book. In Jesus' name, amen. Be seated. Uh, I start off by off this morning by telling you that there is no perfect church. And that shouldn't shock you. If we're honest about our own faults and our own shortcomings, we were not perfect. No believer is. We all fall short of, of God's absolute and, and complete holiness. So as a collection of imperfect Christians, we have this tendency um, in, in the church uh, to think that uh, everybody else, um, we should expect something from perfection from everybody else. But we cannot help to be imperfect. But, but sadly, too many Christians have developed this tendency that when it comes to the church, uh, wrestling, looking over the fence to see where the grass might be greener. Many plays Russian roulette, constantly hoping from, hopping from church to church, looking for something they can't find. Maybe it's a different style of service, better music, a more convenient location, or a more affluent or energetic congregation. So how does the church improve if it's people with gifts and talents leave our church for churches that already have them figured out? Christians need to be willing to really invest in their local churches to look for ways to serve and to sacrifice and to be part of the solution rather than bolt at the first sign of a problem. 
And my I implore you this morning, will you stay? Will you be part of the solution? As we read this letter to the Philadelphians, we become quickly aware that this is a church that the Lord is using for His glory. Down through history, the kind of churches that God uses most often fit into the mold of this church. My hope and prayer that Watermark Fellowship Church is the church that God can use, don't you? I want the Lord to look down at us and say, there is a church that I can do something with for my glory. As I was, my whole prayer this whole week is that this church right here is a church that God can do something with. That's why it makes us worth our time to examine this text, this passage, and we owe it to ourselves whether we fit this mold. If it does, praise God, let's keep going. If it doesn't, let's change um, so that we could fit this mold. And as we have gone through the six churches, we see uh, Ephesus and, and Laodicea, they, their existence are threatened. Uh, we see Smyrna and Philadelphia, which they are faithful in persecution. And Pergamum, Sardis, and Thyatira, it's kind of a mixed bag. This is kind of how the church has been. And out of all the seven churches, this is the church in Philadelphia that you want to be a part of. This is the church that I want to be a part of. And the Lord Jesus Christ had nothing but praise for this church. What would it look like if there's nothing that God has against this church? We're wonderful. As we think about a messenger going from church to church delivering these letters, he, he would have traveled 28 miles southwest of Sardis to come to the city called Philadelphia. The city was about 75 miles from the coast of the Great Highway. The city of Philadelphia was geographically located where three great countries joined together, uh, Mysia, Lydia, and, and Philogia. So when you link this route to the east and the west, it, it becomes a gateway. And it was for this reason that Attalus II, the king of Pergamum, founded the city to be a missionary city in 140 BC. It was the youngest of the seven churches. The city was named after um, the, the king's brother, or his, his love for his brother, Emenius. So the name Philadelphia means brother lover or brotherly love. And, and if you've never been to an Eagles game, you, you would never think that the city of Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. It, it is the worst crowd ever. Okay? There's no brotherly love when you see an Eagles and a Giants game. There's no such a thing as love. Uh, yet, Philadelphia is called the, the city of brotherly love. Um, in AD 17, the city was devastated by this great earthquake. And it was rebuilt by Tiberius. Uh, today, you will still see the, the theater or the Colosseum in, in Philadelphia. Uh, also, you will see the column of St. John's Church. And even since those days, the church has always continued in the city. Uh, it never died. This church even survived the Turkish rule. Today, the town is called Al-Azahir, which is the city of God. That church was maintained its testimony throughout history, unlike the other churches that have been wiped off the face of the earth because of their sin. But this church survived. 
as we have typically have gone through through the book of Revelation chapter 2 and 3, we start with the description. And here in verse 7, if you look here with me, and the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One. So the first thing that Jesus described himself is, I am the Holy One. Jesus describes himself here in, in four ways, here in, cha- in, chapters, in verse 7. First, as the Holy One, the Hohagios. The idea is one of purity as well of separateness. God is separate from us, from, his, from creation as a, the Creator. He is pure, he is undefiled, he is spotless, he is without stain, he is without blemish. In the New Testament, Christ's holiness are frequently tied to his role as Messiah. In Acts 16.69, Peter testified, We have believed and, and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Again, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15, he encouraged the believer to be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. In Isaiah chapter 6, we see um, the, the experience of the prophet Isaiah. That in the year in the king Isaiah died, Isaiah said, I saw the Lord. I saw the Holy One of Israel. I saw the Holy, Holy, Holy. And we know what happened to him when we, he encountered the Holy One of God. We will really feel who we are in Christ, who we are and how holy we are and how holy He is. Not only is He the Holy One, but He's also the real one, the true one. So in addition to His holiness, Christ describes Himself as the one who is true. It speaks of His credibility. It speaks of His dependability. It speaks of His genuineness. It speaks of His trustworthiness. Jesus is a true God. Not a false one. As 1 John 5.20 testifies that we could count on the one Jesus who is the true and eternal life. Who is the true God and eternal life. There's nothing false about God. There's nothing false about Jesus. Therefore, his judgment that he makes about the seven churches are absolutely correct and accurate. He cannot lie. That's why we must listen to his words. Have you found your... Have you found God trustworthy in your life? Have you found him trustworthy? That he never lies to you? That whatever he says to you is true? That is the God that we serve. That's the God that we worship. The true one. The real one. Not only that, not only is he uh, the holy one or the real one, but he's also the sovereign one. Where he said, who has the key of David? Who opens and no one will shut. Who shuts and no one opens. Christ further identifies himself here as a sovereign God. The, the word keys in, in the Greek are symbolic of authority and, and control. This verse goes back to Isaiah 22, and it relates to a man uh, named Eliakim, who was the son of Helkaliah, who carried the keys of the kingdom. He, he held the key of the house of David and said, I will lay on his shoulder, so he shall open and no one shall shut, and he shall shut and no one shall open, meaning... Eliakim had the keys to all the treasures of the king. So when Eliakim opens the door, the treasures of the king was opened, and when he closed it, it was closed. Same thing with Jesus. He has the keys in Revelation 1.18. I have the keys of death and Hades. That's who he is. He opens and he closes. How many of you here have experienced the Lord opening a door 
And when he opened, it's really flat open. And when he closes the door, you know, his actions are based really on his sovereignty. You know, I, I love this passage because I look back when, at the age, when I was in college at the age of 20, when I realized that I, I was not saved. I, I realized that I was not a believer in Christ. And I realized my sinfulness. And God had to open my eyes, had to open the door so I could walk right into it. I heard the gospel over and over, but it was not open into my heart. It was not open to my eyes. So God had to open the, the, the door for me so I could walk into it. Same thing in, in, in our lives. There's a relationship that we have that, man, we really want to share Christ with this person, but God closes the door. And yet there's a person that God wants us with this too, but we don't sometimes think they can't get saved, and yet that's the door that God opens. But see, God is the God who does this. We don't do this. We don't open the door. We don't close the door. He does. So when he opens the door, walk into it. And when he closes it, move on. No wonder he said in John chapter 10, verse 9, that he is the door. And if anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And will come in and go out and, and find pasture. In, in John 14, 6, uh, Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And, and no one comes to the Father except through me. If you're here this morning and, and you don't have a relation with God, I want to just tell you that there's no other way to heaven. There's no other way to God's glory. There's no other way to a perfect life, to an eternal life without Jesus. Jesus himself said, I am the way. I am. This is me. And, I'm the, and this is truth, and, and it will lead to life. This is the, something that we cannot go wrong. You can't go wrong with this. You have to believe this. Not only is the holy one or the real one, the sovereign one, but he's also the all-knowing one. And in verse 8, it says here, I know your works and I know that you. Lastly, Jesus identifies himself as the omniscient, all-knowing God. Meaning having knowledge of all things. He has universal knowledge. So when Christians say God is omniscient, they mean that God knows all things, past, present, and future. A.W. Tozer, one of my favorite author, my favorite book called The Pursuit of God, said this. He is omniscient, which means that he knows in one free and effortless act all matter, all spirit, all relationship, and all events. God knows all of it. And it's effortless. God is a source of all knowledge, that knows all the potentialities of any situation. God knows every person's thoughts, even before they think. So, so knowing that God is omniscient should allow us to trust His will, His, His word, and His timing, that we don't know all the answers God does. Hebrews 4.13 says, no, no creature is hidden from his sight, but are all naked and exposed. You know, when I look at the attributes of God here and, and his character, doesn't it give you great comfort that knowing that the God who said in Romans chapter 8 that I am with you, I am for you, is actually the Holy One, the real one, the sovereign one? And the all-knowing one, does that give you great comfort? It, sure, it, should, it should, right? 
Because that's the God who said, I am for you. That's the God who says, I am for you and not against you. Not only that, I, like I said, if this a church that you want to be a part of, Philadelphia was a church. Someone once said that if, you, if only doctrine, it's legalism. If only love, it's humanism. But if we have doctrine and love present, it is ministry. The all-knowing Jesus had nothing but praise for this church because their doctrine was straight, their ministry was active, and their lifestyle was in order. And out of all the seven churches, this is the church, really, that you want to be a part of. I just thought about it last night. What if God has nothing but praise for Watermark Church? What if? You know what made Philadelphia so great, this church in Philadelphia? Number one, because their dependence on the Lord's strength. Because they were dependent on the Lord's strength. Jesus said, I know that you have but little power. Which doesn't mean it was a weak church, but it was meaning it was few in numbers or with a bunch of slaves and poor people that comprised the church. When I read this passage, it sounded like a backward compliment, right? And I mean, you don't usually feel complimented if somebody says you have little faith or you have little strength. Or really, in other words, you are weak. How many guys here in junior high school or high school have ever been called weak? Have you ever been called you weak, right? And, and how does that make you feel? Did it make you feel, oh, man, I feel so great. Did you come home and say, you know what somebody told me? I am weak. Is that something that, that you brag about, right? What do you try to do when somebody calls you weak? You will prove that you are what? Strong, right? That's how you would prove, right? I, I, remember, um, um, I remember a friend of mine, she was called weak by, by this girl in high school, and she was a transfer student, and she wrestled in her other school, right? So they are in the same weight class. They were in the same weight class, and he said, Coach, I, I, I don't need to wrestle with, with this one. She, she's weak. Uh, it didn't take long till he submitted. I mean, he was the talk of the town after that. I mean, nobody could look at him. And we didn't know until later that she, that she came from a wrestling family. And, and But yet this church, God said, but you have little power. Yes, they were little, but not in power. Because they depended on the Lord's strength. In 1 John 15, 5. God said, I'm divine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. This church understood where their strengths come from. They understood that they were not capable. They understood that they were weak. They understood that they had no ability to do anything. They understood that they had no strength on, them, on themselves. There's a sense of divine humility here. In, in, first, in John chapter 5, verse 19, Jesus answered and said to them, Most truly I say to you, the Son of God can do nothing of himself. Did he say that? I say to you, the Son, Jesus, can do nothing of himself. But what he sees the Father do, for whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. Put it another way, he did nothing alone or independently. 
Does that hurt you? It hurted me. There's something in our, in our nature which wants us to go our own way, to make it on our own. I'll figure it out. I'll work hard. I am a self-made man. Look at me. It doesn't work. F.B. Meyer, I love what he said, apart from him, we can do nothing. While we are abiding in him, nothing's impossible. And the one purpose of our life should be, therefore, to remain in living and intense union with Christ. Guard against everything that would break it and employ every means of cementing it and enlarging it. And just in proportion as we do, we will find a strength flowing like into us from every possible emergency. And I love what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. It's actually uh, one of the best, the, mo- the most powerful passages that I memorized while I was in the hospital. Because... Um, once in a while, I, people often say, hey, you, you look good. You, you, I'm glad you look better. And, and, and I said, but I don't feel good. And I, feel, I don't feel better. This week, I was reminded that um, I'm not quite done yet. Um, I called my doctor and said, hey, how come I'm feeling this way? How come I'm still feeling tingling in my hands and in my feet? How come I still feel so fatigued at times? And he says to me, did you know, or if you don't remember, there's 480 hours of chemotherapy that your body went through. And you just don't go and say, oh, I'm all right after 480 hours. It takes time. But you know what it was for me? It was a lesson for me and, and, and the scars that I bear it's a sign for me of how much Christ loves me. It's a sign for me that I am dependent on Him. It's a sign for me that apart from Him, I can't go on living. Apart from Him, I cannot get up every day. Apart from Him, there's absolutely nothing that I can do. I am weak. But I don't mind because I rather boast in my weaknesses. I rather do. So that the power of Christ may what? May actually empower me. And when he says that my grace is sufficient for you, it is sufficient. That when we are weak, that he is strong. But our problem is, is that we think we are strong. But when you actually think you are weak and you're independent of God, that's what makes you strong. The Lord alone gives increase. The Lord alone is the one in charge. So neither wealth, nor influence, nor promotional schemes, or the eloquence of the pulpit, or the harmony of music can give an effective ministry. The Lord alone gives the increase. This church had only a few workers, but they didn't wait till they were stronger or had more people. They stepped out in faith, knowing that God would help them. They didn't use their size as an excuse to do nothing. William Carey started missionary work in India with little support. Hudson Taylor started the China Inland Mission by faith. Adoniram Judson ministered in Thailand with little, with little, as much little as they can get. This man had little strength, but they stepped out in faith and saw God wonderfully provide. God blessed their ministry because they were faithful. You know, one thing I love about reading biographies is that um, I, I find real strength when I read Hudson Taylor. And Adonai Judson or William Carey, when I read their biography, I found real strength. 
not because these men were strong, but, but they were weak and they depended on a God who can do amazing, amazing things. And that's the God of William Carey. That's the God of Hudson Taylor and other just That's your God. Your God can do amazing things in your life if you depend on him and not on your own strength. To have little strength is actually good because you're going to depend on his strength. I've seen churches blow up every night and it goes away. What happens? Pride. If we're not careful when God blesses Watermark Fellows your church and you think it's because of you and you forget that God is sovereign, the sovereign one who blesses, who opens, and, and the one who closes. You see, from the very beginning, God desired to do all things together with us. He used to walk with Adam in the garden in the cool of the day. God wants to share his life with you. At the cross, he made us new. At the cross, he made us clean by his blood. Then he puts on his Holy Spirit within us so that we can live the life he intended for us to live. A supernatural life which depends on the Spirit's power in every aspect of life from start to finish. That's what it means to depend on God. So this little church in Philadelphia was depending on the Lord's strength. Number two, they were dedicated to God's word. He said, I know that you've kept my word because you've kept my word about patient endurance. I love Father's Day. It's one of the times of the year when I get complete obedience from every member of my family. And I tell them not to spend a lot of money on me, and they don't. <laughs> Second, the uh, Lord writes, you have kept my word. Meaning they didn't stray from the path of obedience to God's word. They dedicated themselves to the guarding principle of his word in such a way that they received praise from God. Wouldn't it be awesome that when you and I stand before God and he will tell you, he will call your name like he did in the church of Sardis last week. That he will call your name, he will testify of name. This is my child who is dedicated to my word. How awesome would that be? They've, this church followed the example of Job, who said in chapter 23, verse 12, I have not departed from his commands, but have treasured his words more than daily food. According to the Pew Research Center, 90% of Americans own a phone. 67% find themselves checking for messages, alerts, and calls, even they don't notice their phone ringing or vibrating. Oh, I, I see some guilty people here. 44% have slept with their phone next to their bed because they wanted to make sure they didn't miss any calls, text messages, updates during the night. 29% describe the cell phone as something they can't imagine living without. A amen? <laughs> All this use equates to the average person checking their phone 150 times per day. How many guys exceed 150 times a day? How many guys exceed this in an hour? <laughs> right? right? How many of you, I think this percentage is wrong. That 29% describe that their cell phone as something they can't imagine living without. I think this church will be 100% in this. I finally realized that if, if, if people were prisoners of their phones, right? I want you guys to see the slides here. They're, they're prisoners of their phones, right? That's what they call it, what? Cell phones. <laughs> you guys get that? <laughs> right? 
And there's a term for this. You're a nomophobia. That's what you are, a nomophobia. It's, it's a fear or worry of being without your mobile phone or unable to use it. And so how many of you here are nomophobia? I, I have three children who are main nomophobia. All right? So, so, so we have a rule in our home that our, our, the phones are downstairs charging by itself, right? Man, you could see all the disobedient faces. You could see it. Hey, it's time to put your phone back. They go down the stairs and their the head is always down. How could oh, injustice? Where's my justice? I go until you stop paying for your phone. You have no justice. I'm justice. <laughs> so, so until you do that, that's what it is. And yet, we're living in an era where capturing moments is more important than being with people. In, in John 14, 21, before he was arrested, Jesus stressed the importance of faithful obedience. That those who accept my commandments, obey them, are ones who love me. And because they love me, my Father will love them. And I will love them and reveal myself to each of them. Jesus replied, all who love me will do what I say. My Father will love them and we will come and make our home with each of them. And anyone who doesn't love me will not obey me. Again, later that evening, Jesus said, when you obey my commandments, you remain in my love. Jesus says, I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. So if you want to know whether someone really loves God, I want you to watch and see what he does with what Jesus said. In, in 1 John chapter 2, Jesus gives this, John gives this acid test whether someone is a, is a believer or not. And we can be sure that we know him if we obey his commandments. If someone claims, I know God, but doesn't obey God's commandments, that person's a liar. And is not living in the truth. But those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. That's how we know we are living in him. So if you want to know here that if you're a true believer or not, the only thing you need to do is look at your life. And do you see an increasing pattern of obedience in your life to God's word or, or an increasing pattern of sin? You could, you could tell. Whether you find your life following what God is saying in his word or you find yourself disobeying it. In James chapter 1, verse 22 and 25, it says, Just don't listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourselves. For if you listen to the word and, and don't obey it, it's like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself walk away and forget what you look like. How many of you guys here had bad hair days? Right? You wake up in the morning and you say, Whoa! <laughs> Who is that in the mirror? Right? If, if, the, if the mirror wants to break, it will break. Right? And, and, and you see yourself walk away and forget what you look like. That's the same thing here. You, you, listen, to, you listen here and you become a professional listener of, of God's word. And, and you keep listening Sunday after Sunday, life group after life group. And then you look at it and say, I need to change something. God wants me to change something in my life. And, and you look at yourself in the mirror of God's word and said. Oh, I, I need to live pure life so that I can see God. Oh, I, okay, I'm just going to walk away. And you don't change anything. 
what happens is you just became great listeners. You become professional listeners of the Word of God. But God is not interested in you becoming a professional listener. God is interested in you become a professional what? Doer of His Word. God just didn't call us to say, hear my words every week. He says, do what you are what? What you have listened. Do it. That's what makes you what belong to me. That's what shows you that you belong to me. That's what proof that you are really a child of God. And yet, sadly, many people in the church today ignore this. And he says here in verse 25, but if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, and if you do what it says, and don't forget what you heard, I want you to get, to get this. God said, God will bless you for doing it. So God said, I want to be blessed. Don't you? Don't you want to be blessed? God said, if you want to be blessed, then do what I tell you to do, and you will be blessed. That's, it's that simple. Yet it, it is hard. Obedience to God's word is still the proof of our love for Christ. A uh, recently licensed pilot was flying his private plane in a cloudy day. He was not a very experienced in instrumental instrument landing. So when the control tower was to bring him in, he began to panic. Then a stern voice came over the radio. You just obey instructions, we'll take care of the obstructions. Th- that's what God wants us to do. He wants us to just listen and he'll take care of whatever is in front of us. What if we begin to treat our Bibles the, we, the way we treat our cell phones? What if we carried it with us everywhere? What if we checked it for messages all through the day? What if we use it in a case of emergency? What if we use it to spend an hour or more using it each day? What if? But, but sadly, you spend more time in your cell phone than you spend in the Word of God. There's many people who says they call themselves Christians, but yet they never open the book. They never spend time with the book. And if you're going to use your cell phone, at least put an app in there. Right? Put a Bible app in there. Right? And, and tells you, read! Live. But this church was dedicated to the word of God. Number two, number three, their devotion to the Lord's name. They were devoted to the, name, to, to the Lord's name. They were also marked by their devotion to Jesus. They were loyal. He tells the Philadelphian believers, they have not denied my name, implying that they were under pressure to do so. Pergamum and Revelation 2 were also praised for their devotion. Both churches faced deep persecution, but they refused to deny the Lord's name. They were loyal regardless of what it cost them. There's a story told uh, about the surrender of the, Confederate, the Confederacy at um, Appomattox uh, Courthouse. General Grant was, the, was an unusual man, uh, knowing the war was over and the victory was his. He showed great and unusual kindness and respect towards General Lee, allowing to ride freely in and out of the area. He also uh, allowed the Confederate men to keep their possessions and horses. Grant gave them food because they were hungry. And let them all go home and disturb. General Lee was permanent, permanently touched by his kindness. After the war, Lee became the president of Washington College in Virginia. On one occasion, one of his fellow instructors, also a southerner, began to speak poorly to Grant, to Lee, assuming he had agreed. Lee turned and looked at the man straight in the eye and said, Sir, if you ever again presume to speak respectfully of General Grant in my presence, Either you or I will sever his connection with this university. And because General Lee had received such kindness from Grant, 
He devoted himself to protecting the good name of the one who showed him such kindness. So should we. God gave us tremendous kindness at the cross. That's why it's worth being loyal to him. This Philadelphian believers were devoted not only to the name of Jesus, but also to his character. They believed that he is God in human flesh and did not deny his true nature. In Revelation 14, during the tribulation period, God's holy people must endure persecution, patiently obeying his commands and maintaining their faith in Jesus. They are to remain loyal to Christ no matter the cost. They have refused to take the mark of the beast. It will determine, it, it will, you know, when I think about this, we, about my own life, um, there are times where I, I just, ashamed of Christ for whatever reason that may be. Fear of men, fear of, of not getting recognized, or whatever it may be, but I failed to confess Christ. And yet I'm reminded in this passage that God will always open up doors for us. The church of Philadelphia was willing to suffer for the gospel. They didn't stop witnessing for the Lord even when people persecuted them. See, for us, we have such an amazing message. The, the message of eternal life, the message that you don't have to die. A message that you got to have life. And yet we're, in many ways, ashamed to share this life with someone else. But not this Christians who in Philadelphia who were small and in size, yet powerful in their witness. What made this church so great? Because they never had a rebuke from the Lord. They didn't have a rebuke, not, none. No criticism, no. No warning of judgment, nothing. But just praise. And here's the encouragement. In, in Revelation 3, verse 11, 13, I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. One of the glorious aspects of biblical prophecy is that we should live in a hope of an anytime eminent return of Christ. The phrase, I'm coming soon, is not a warning, but a promise of deliverance, a promise of, of rescue. And due to the fact that his coming is eminent any day, any time, we should stay strong. You should stay strong. In Titus chapter 2, verse 13, while we look forward to with hope to the wonderful day when the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ will be revealed. It's a hope. It's a day of hope. It's a, it's a wonderful day when he comes. In Revelation chapter 22, verse 20, it tells us to pray. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Come. Let me ask you, are you looking forward to the eminent return of Christ? Are you looking forward to go home? To your real home? Jesus encourages here and to hold fast, which he mentioned prior in chapter 2 and uh, in the other churches, so that no one may take your crown. Again, not a warning, but a, but a promise. But I want you to observe that he didn't say crowns, but used a singular form referring specifically to one type of crown, meaning the crown of life, the victor's crown, which no one can steal. But this crown could be forfeited if the believers fail to hold fast. See, perseverance... Is, is the key here, which he promised to the churches also of Smyrna. In Second John 8, what a humbling passage. It says here, watch out that you do not lose what we have worked so hard to achieve. Be diligent so that you receive your full reward. Don't we want to receive our full reward? Don't we want to, to get everything that we have worked so hard for and not forfeit it? 
He says, be diligent. What a reminder for us to not let temporal concerns of this world to rob us of eternal rewards we will have in heaven. I was talking to someone this week and, and he's retiring uh, at the end of the month. And he says, I have achieved everything. I've achieved everything. I have a lot of money in the bank. I have full retirement. I have my pension. I have all this. And, and I have my house paid off. And I have many cars. And I have many, many, many things. And he said to me, but I am a, I'm lonely. He says, my wife left me. My kids have nothing, want nothing to do with me. To have all this. And yet I have nothing. What a reminder for us to not let really the temporal concern of this world to rob us of our eternal rewards we have in heaven. See, whatever we have here doesn't really matter. People often say, you know what, I, I struggle in giving to God. And nearly God will have struggled giving to you. You know, he might not give you everything here on earth, but you could all send it on ahead. That's what God is saying. And, and yet, we sometimes feel in, in our own lives that, why do we keep on serving? Why do we keep on going to church? Why do we keep on, on sharing Christ? Why do we keep on doing this? Why? Be, because Paul says here, this in, amazing encouragement. He says, be strong and immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord, for you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. Are you listening to what the Lord's saying here? It's it's worth it to follow me. So I'm asking you, will you follow him? Will you follow Christ? And then that leads us to our last point this morning, the promise. What promise did he give this church? Here's the promise he gave him church. He he gave them a promise of a gospel opportunity. He said, behold, I have set before you an open door. Which, one, which no one is able to shut. Like I said earlier, Philadelphia is located in a long valley which opened uh, back from the sea. Philadelphia was the gateway to the east. In other words, you couldn't get there unless you came through Philadelphia. It was a city that you went through to get all to those other places. The Lord Jesus put them in a strategic place. People can't get where they want to go unless they come through Philadelphia. So from a missionary perspective, this church had a great opportunity to be on mission with God. The first promise to the church is an open door, which no one's able to shut, meaning an opportunity and success of the gospel to go forth and spread. It, in this, if this is the meaning, Christ is promising the church with gospel opportunities. And God is promising all of us with gospel opportunities. No different. The church has been called the church of the open door. But let's not forget the reason the, the door was opened. It's open because Jesus carries the keys. It's open because he's the one who opens it and he's the one who shuts it. And if Jesus gave them an open door, if Jesus gives Watermark Church an open door, then he would see to it that we are able to walk through it. As God would have me here as his under-shepherd, this local church here in in the city of China will be a great commandment and and a great commission church. We we want to be known as people who love the Lord and, and those who love their neighbors and those who are committed to make disciples by going and by baptizing, by teaching all that God has commanded. Every church has opportunities around them. If we would only lift up our eyes and look at the lost world around us. I love what Mark Satura said. 
the mark of a great church is not in the seating capacity, but it is sending capacity. Paul said this in in First Corinthians sixteen nine that the great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When God opens the door, and hearts of people people respond to the gospel. About once a year or twice a year, I like to um, hold a training for us. Um, to we're preparing for Easter. Easter is a is a big day for um, the evangelical world. It's either Christmas or Easter, right? That's what we see the most people during those times. And and this year or the last year, I, I've been trying to encourage you to have one person. And, and this season, we want to we'll go. Well, who's your one Easter? And in who's your one Easter, we need to um, be able to just say, God, could I? Just, Reach one person this coming Easter. Just one person who does not know the Lord. Who is struggling in their faith. And I just want to love on them. I just want to share the love of Christ in them. And I, last Friday we had a, a deaf Bible study at our house. And, and there were 13 of us there. And, and you know the one thing that I loved the most was this. Is that... Um, the... They invited people that they cared about. They, they invited the people that they knew wanted to know more about Christ. And I, I felt the love of Christ there. I felt God was, these people loved each other. And, and we came all together and, and we studied about grace. And there was a moment in, in, our, in our time where I couldn't even speak because they were just talking to each other. And it was beautiful. And they were communicating to each other how much God is so gracious and loving and merciful. And, and we too need to have the same heart. There's a lost person right next to us at work or right next to us at school or right next to wherever we are. We have access to these people. And we need to use that moment to say, God, please open the door. I know you have the power to open the door. Please open the door so I can walk into it. So if someone says to you, hey, I want to know about Jesus, that's an open door. You guys get it? Right? If someone actually says, hey, I want to know more about God, that's an open door. That's not a closed door. Okay, walk into it. And two weeks from now, Mark 6 and 7, uh, we're going to have a training uh, here, a church Friday night and Saturday, and called the Best News. Uh, Best News Evangelical Training with James Merritt. And we're going to launch this. Because we want to tell you how to present Christ to someone. We want to be able to train you to say, okay, if God opens the door, I will know what to say. Right? Don't you? That's the reason why we're going to go to a day and a half, and we're just going to learn how to share this best news to someone. And then on the 11th of um, the eleventh of March, uh, we will pray together for Easter as a church, and we'll gather together and pray for that one. But one thing is for sure, starting March 1st, I'll give you more details next week. If you download the app called Version, okay, if you, if you download the Version, it's what I use to have my reading plan. It will also teach you, um, there's, a, there's a Who's Your One devotional prayer that will last from March 1st 
to April 9th, which is the day before Good Friday. And if you just walk through with us in those journey of doing a devotional every day, okay, and praying every day for your one, and let's just see what God will open. The second thing that God says to them is not only will I give you a gospel opportunity, but I will give you safety. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming in the whole world. Try, try those who dwell on the earth. Christ's words here is a promise of safety, meaning Jesus will rescue his whole church from the hour of trial that is coming. Jesus speaking about the tribulation period. So whether you think that the church will be raptured before the tribulation period begins, or whether you think, that's pre-mail, or whether you think the church will be going through the first half of the tribulation period, which is mid-trib, or the church will be preserved through the tribulation post-trib, or many even believe that we're already in the tribulation as well. But we can all agree that Jesus says that he will keep his people safe from it. In 1 Thessalonians 1.10, and they speak of how you are looking forward to the coming of God's Son from heaven, Jesus, whom God has raised from the dead. He is the one who has rescued us from the terrors of the coming judgment. There is a coming judgment to this world. This is a promise that God will spare the church from his wrath. And it will keep them from the biggest trial unbelievers will ever face. If you want to know more about the tribulation period, uh, go to a life group this week. Your life group leaders will explain to you all about the tribulation. Uh, and all, I mean all. <laughs> no, some. <laughs> but if you're a Christian, you have nothing to worry about. You're not to be, very, but if you're not, be very afraid. God is not playing. Not only is he going to grant us God opportunity or safety, but he will give us honor. Look at verse 9. Behold, I will make those in the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and, and they will learn that I have loved you. One day God will just say what? I will prove to them, and I will tell them how much you love me. And here's the reality. There's people in hell today who are right now there waiting for their judgment, and there are people here on earth who will never believe, and there's people in heaven who is already believers who are in heaven, and there's people here on earth that are believers, and one day all of these people will gather. In Philippians chapter 2 says this, Therefore God has highly exalted him, exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One day these people will have acknowledged that the Christians were right. They will admit that the Christians knew God and, they, and that they didn't. And they will know that God loves his Philippian, Philadelphian Christians. And if we take care of God's work, I believe this, he will take care of our battles. Not only that. In other words, either you're here or there or either in heaven or in hell, all will bow down. Either you will bow down in submission of honor and you will bow down in bitter submission. But you will bow down regardless. Lastly, God will grant them citizenship. Said the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out from it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from heaven, from God out of heaven and my own name. And with eternal rewards in mind, Christ gives some more promises here for those who overcome, meaning it will get better. He promised them that they were going to be pillars. And so the people whose homes and lives were frequently devastated by earthquakes in Philadelphia, this was such an amazing promise that they will become, that God will bring to a place that will be unshakable, immovable, and that they will be forever in his presence, and they'll be forever in his comfort. Yet there's more. 
Jesus also promised them that for all eternity, they will bear the name of our Lord, which will mark us out as his possession. Then he will also give us an eternal citizenship. Forever enjoy all the rights and the privilege of citizen in God's eternal city. So is it worth it? Absolutely. And God is just not full of judgment, but he's full of promises. And he wants to bless you. So in a very real sense, the church today is like the Philadelphian church. For God has set before us many open doors and opportunity. If he opens the door, we must work. If he shuts the door, we must wait. Above all, we must be faithful to him and see the opportunities, not as obstacles. If we miss the opportunities, we lose our rewards or crowns. And this means being ashamed before him when he comes. And none of us want to be that in that. If you're here, if you're an unbeliever, this promise doesn't apply to you. I beg you to believe the gospel. I beg you to believe the good news that God became man in Jesus Christ. And he lived the life we should have lived and died the death that we should have died in our place. And three days later, he rose from the dead, proving he is the son of God and offering the gift of salvation and forgiveness of sins to anyone who repents and believes in the name. You must, I beg you, to believe. If you're a believer here, those of you here are believers in Jesus Christ, let me encourage you not only to hold fast, but also to engage your unbelieving friends and family today with the good news of the gospel. Like Jesus said in Matthew 9, the harvest is truly plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Paul's prayer, and I want you to make this a prayer of your life. If you highlight this in your, word, in your Bible, in Colossians 4, pray this every day. It says, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Don't be afraid of being rejected. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting Jesus. He said that he will be with you till the end of the age as you are making disciples. Here's my challenge for us this morning. Are you living in the light of his return? Have you been faithful in looking forward to the day the Lord might crown you for your faithfulness? Are you holding fast to what you've earned by persevering in the gospel? Or have you stopped serving the Lord? I love what David Platt said. This, we remember, is the great reward of the gospel. God himself. And when we risk our lives to run after Christ, we discover the safety that is found only in his sovereignty, the security is found only in his love, and the satisfaction that is found only in his presence. This is the eternally great reward, and we should be foolish to settle for anything less. Let's pray together. Oh, God, I, there's no prayer I'd like to pray this morning, God, that you make Watermark Fellowship Church in the same mold as the Philadelphian Church. That we will be known, God, that we are people who are dependent on you, that we're people who are dedicated to your word, and we are people who are loyal to your name. So, Lord God, I pray this morning as we sing, that we just don't sing, that we live the things that we heard this morning, that we live 
God, with the songs that we're about to sing, that God, will we leave, that we live in your power. So, Lord Jesus, I pray this morning, God, that you cause a work in our own lives. That when you, when we see, when we pray that for an open door, that we believe that you're the true God who will open the door. And God, and when you shut the door, we just have to wait. So, Lord, help us. And this we pray in your name. Amen.